All right, Forge family, uh, this next series of podcasts that we're going to launch on comes from a text that's just really personal. Uh, it's, it's really a precious thing to me personally. But when I graduated from Cal Berkeley, uh, I'd had a couple of years of profligate living along in there. And uh, there was a season of repentance. And I looked around campus and uh, the, there was a group of guys that would pray. Excuse me. They would pray on, on Sproul Hall steps. And they were pretty active on campus. And I, I hung around with them enough to know uh, I, could, I, could, I want to do that. So when I graduated from Cal, I went immediately to the national, international headquarters of this, of this uh, campus ministry organization, and they put me through ministry, campus ministry training. Now in that season, the quote, wisdom, unquote, of IBM was mentioned sort of often in the middle of the planning sessions and training sessions. And uh, what I remember is a phrase that said, plan your work, work your plan. You heard that in other contexts as well? So um, they handed me a sheaf of paper that had been pre-filled out, and I was supposed to put down annual goals and quarterly goals and semester goals and, you know, weekly down to daily sort of thing. And I went, oh, is this what? This what? Okay, I'll do it. Uh, and then they, I got a, after training, I got assigned to Stanford University with a small team. And... Um, and further, I was assigned to the men's freshman dormitory on campus. And so for the next, you know, from September to June, I would knock on doors. I would catch guys coming out of the showers. I would go to intramural football games and just stand on the sidelines and make eye contact. I had coffee with, I had meals with. I, I was trying to get, a, get their attention so that I could tell them about Jesus. And for the most part, they were polite, but they were totally uninterested. And week after week, I was filling out these reports with zeros. And after a period of months, I was really discouraged. And um, I was asked by the regional director for this international organization, so how's, how's work on campus going? And because my goal coming in to that organization was I wanted to be discipled. That organization transliterated that word from discipleship to training. And so they trained me. And it was dry as dust. So I shot my mouth off at the regional director and uh, that I felt like I had not been discipled. And it was difficult and I just never saw the campus director, etc. And so after I'd sort of run my mouth, he said, fine, we can take care of that. And he assigned me the following year to Arizona State University, down in the desert, just south of Phoenix. And in that place was the best trainer that this international organization had. His name was Elmer. And he lived in a wheelchair because he had horrific pain from rheumatoid arthritis. But when he crooked his finger at you and spoke at you, you know, you, you're just like, yes, sir, sir. So I went to Arizona, uh, not knowing that that following year, while I was in Arizona, uh, the campus at Stanford University got blown open by anti-war uh, demonstrations. Rocks were thrown in windows, buildings, you know, stuff was burnt. 
around the edges of the building. I'm not sure they ever torched the building, but they'd find a dumpster and set it aflame. Um, you know, there was rocks in the air at the cops and bricks were thrown. And at the same time, a drug presence on campus began to rise very steeply. And the free love movement uh, moved in to the dormitories with the students. Now, uh, that was met by the Jesus Movement outreaches on the Stanford campus that stopped that and reversed it. And over a short period of time, there was a dramatic change at Stanford. But I wasn't there for that. Uh, when I got to Arizona, I discovered that the pressure to perform that I thought I had left behind at Stanford was sort of set on a vertical trajectory at Arizona State. Now, I'd never been discipled, and that was on my heart. Because uh, I came to ministry after this block of time growing up in church with family and then away from the Lord and then back with the Lord. and I kind of knew what I wanted, but it wasn't happening. But as I began to share the Lord on campus with students and some professors, I, there was a shift. Those people wanted to know Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. It, it was a great year. It was a wonderful year. And mid-year... The, the staff up and down Arizona, from University of Arizona all the way to Flagstaff, to Northern Arizona State or whatever it was called at the time, plus ASU, plus some junior colleges. The staff worked like dogs to get 500 students out of Arizona in cars and, and travel to headquarters in San Bernardino for a Christmas conference, a regional conference. And uh, we were exhausted. We, you know, we sat through those, we could barely stay awake through the conference and relate to the kids and make sure everything was peaceful and then crash. But at, toward the end of that conference, we were summoned to a hotel room in the uh, Arrowhead Springs Hotel. And Elmer was there in his wheelchair with his wife. And uh, uh, he um, laid out for us uh, a set of astronomical numbers for how many students were going to be contacted. How many students were going to come to the next regional conference? going to be a thousand. He was going to get a thousand students out of Arizona. Okay, And the number of students to be recruited to join the campus staff. Instantly, I knew I was not going to renew my, my contract, if you will, with uh, that organization. And I wasn't going to be on that campus. And I wasn't going to be with that director. And I sat on that. I, I, it, it was, I had a twist in my heart for a couple of months. Uh, just trying to figure out, how do I work that out? What comes next, Lord? Where do I? So one night, I called a friend of mine named John, who lived in Mountain View, and uh, we'd been roommates before. Uh, he was a musician who was playing and recording music for Jesus Movement stuff. And uh, I poured out my bitter troubles over ministry metrics of having it be a numbers-driven game. And John prayed for me hung up and minutes later the phone rang and it was the high school pastor from Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto named Ron Ritchie and I had known Ron for about five months maybe because when I got to Stanford the first couple of months I was sharing the Lord and sharing the Lord and sharing. nobody I had no converts if you will nobody prayed that prayer I had nobody to follow up with on the weekend nobody to go to football games with no you know I just was like what do I do with myself so I wandered into Peninsula Bible Church evening service one evening, and Ron was on the platform, and he said, our high school department is growing at a phenomenal rate because it was the edge of the Jesus movement, and students were like, oh, yeah, Jesus is a good dude. 
And so Ron said he was looking for some young adults to come and work with him as part of a team. And so I raised my hand and I went and found, met with Ron and he went, oh, that's great, come to this location over here at a park in Palo Alto. And um, I was there for a month or six weeks or something. He said, you want to teach a Bible study? And I went, sure. I've never done that in my life. But, you know, I did. Uh, and I learned. And, it, and I still have relationships so with at least one of the kids. She's now almost my, you know, she's got to be, how old is Holly? 70? Yeah, okay. The relationship has lasted that long. She was in that class. And then I, then I went from Palo Alto, if you will, from Stanford down to Arizona. Here's Ron on the phone. And he wanders through, how's the weather in Phoenix? Is Camelback Mountain still there? And when's the last time it rained? I went, this has a nonsense conversation. But he was taking my temperature. And, and he prayed for me, hung up the phone. What I didn't know was that Ron and John jumped in the car in Sunnyvale and started driving to Tempe overnight to get to me. And they arrived about 1 o'clock the following day. They were burnt around the edges, having driven all night. They got stuck in a, in a sandstorm outside of Palm Desert. And they couldn't get the the, the convertible uh, cover up on this little 850 Spider Fiat. They were covered with dirt. They'd smoked cigars all night. They were rank. Um, but they were there to see me. And so they demanded I take them out for lunch. And we went to have lunch. And it was, it was really encouraging. It was good to be with them. But that's sort of the cycle of, of the next 30 hours or so of comfort and scripture and butt kicking. So I, I had some of it coming. My attitude was pretty bad. And... Uh, at the end of it, I got an invitation from Ron to come back and be part of uh, a, an internship at Peninsula Bible Church, pastoral internship. And um, I'd been walking around in a, a daze, kind of going, wow, I just feel so loved. This is, this is so encouraging. Somebody listens to me finally. And uh, if there was more of that at PBC, I was ready for it. I was just like, I can't wait to get to the end of this gig at, in San, at Arizona State and go to Palo Alto to be involved in this program. So... In the fall of 1971, Jan and I sat across the, t the room from each other. She was in the same class of interns, about 28 of us, something like that. And we were listening to Ray Stedman uh, teach through the New Covenant ministry out of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, parts of 2, all the way to chapter 7. It was so different from what I had been taught in the churches I grew up in and what I'd been practicing on that campus staff that... You know, but here I was sitting in this class, soaking up the scripture, and it was it was correcting me. It was it was changing my compass, and I just had a sense great change was coming. Now that passage in Second Corinthians has been a precious chunk of ground in the scriptures for the last forty nine years. As I considered what the Lord was leading for our next set of podcast things and and sermons, uh, there was a strong prompt on me to come to this passage for me. And I got a chance to share some of the great stuff, the truths that are in it with you. So, the passage in on the New Covenant ministry runs, as I said, from 2.14 to 7.2. This marvelous stuff is wrapped on both sides of the text in 2 Corinthians with tears, with spiritual warfare, with Paul's sufferings in the gospel, the business about trying to raise a, an offering out of, out of Greece to send it personally hand carry it back to, to Jerusalem because the saints, the churches in Judea were starving. And in the middle of it is this little bit here. And it's as if you make a burrito that's wrapped around by this salty, chewy, tough, 
hard circumstance stuff. And in the middle of it is this unctuous, sweet stuff that's laden with wisdom, grace, and promise. And it's intensely personal from the Apostle Paul. To me, it was delicious. Today, I'm going to give you an, ex- uh, an introduction, if you will, to 2 Corinthians, so that uh, you can uh, get this set in a, in a parenthesis, that, that this new covenant joy is set as a parenthesis of joy and blessing in the epistle of, of 2 Corinthians and the context of the church in Corinth. If you, uh, you have a little map in your hand. Uh, it's very low pixel count. I couldn't blow it up any bigger than that. It's kind of fuzzy. Nevertheless, you can see that Corinth is located in Greece, southeast from Philippi, southeast from Thessalonica. And so when Paul, Silas, and Timothy got out the back door of Thessalonica, when the the mob came to the front door of Jason's house to get them, they they went down the road and then turned south, and they got partway down that road, and then Paul was so concerned for Thessalonians and the churches there that he sent Timothy back up the road to Thessalonica to slip into the city quietly, and he and Silas went on to Corinth. And he was there for a considerable period of time. It's located in the, in the province of Achaia. And the location of Corinth is an isthmus. All you geographers, this is a land bridge that runs between mainland over there and a land bridge and then a huge chunk would, would have been an island on, on any other map. Okay? That isthmus at Corinth is four miles across. On each side of that isthmus is a port city. It was already in those ports that had started a a Roman economic miracle. It was known all over the Roman world about Corinth because they were making money. Previously, in 146 B.C., a Roman consul named Lucius Mummius had flattened Corinth. He'd killed all the men, slaughtered all the men, and sent every man, woman, and ch- every woman and child to the slave blocks. A hundred years passed. Julius Caesar, just prior to his um, assassination in the Senate, he established Corinth as a colony city, a Roman colony, and he he put retired Roman soldiers few generals, some merchants, some, some uh, administrators uh, and officials in that city. And very quickly, Corinth began to function as a virtual mirror of Rome. Now, Paul arrives there with Silas in AD 50. At that time, Corinth had 80,000 citizens. So it was not a small little blip on the map. In addition, every citizen, it's, Edison, it's estimated, had at least two slaves. So now you've got a quarter of a million people living on that isthmus and kind of up the sides of the mountains on both sides. It was a very cosmopolitan city. Had huge marketplaces. 18,000 seats in the amphitheater. 3,000 seats in the, in the concert center. 12 temples. 12 temples that spread out worship of the Roman gods and goddesses. Greek gods and goddesses. Egyptian gods and goddesses a synagogue, and some secret meeting places for the Greek mystery religions, including, um, including, its name is, <laughs> Mithras. 
okay which is a which is a counterfeit look at of virgin birth and you know etc not worth looking at it not worth your time okay um, the two ports on both sides of that isthmus provided astounding flow of market and goods passing across that city the isthmus games were second only to the olympics in, a, in, in feats of strength and speed and skill Corinth was a place of travel trade tourism sex on offer and religious pluralism but it was business that sat on top of that pile of priorities in Corinth and it called the tune for the dance see there, there were no landed gentry in Corinth but those who were wealthy business people they had big say in what happened in Corinth <clears throat> ships from all over the northern Mediterranean and those even from the Black Sea would, would come down through the Hellespont through the Bosporus and, and sail into Corinth or from Italy they'd sail into Corinth they, now mind you it's, it's a great set of ports okay so if your small ship rolled in to the south side if you will of Corinth they could take your ship and get it out of the water, put it on rollers, and drag it four miles and relaunch it on the other side of the isthmus. If your ship was large, you sold your cargo at the first port and took off going wherever you were going. That cargo was carted four miles across and resold on the other side to waiting ships. Ship captains gladly paid the dues, the, the, the uh, port fees or what it was on both places because that saved them a 200-mile journey around the Peloponnese Peninsula. On the map, you can see it. There's a bunch of fingers that sort of stick out into the Adriatic. Okay? It's right at the conjunction of the Aegean and the Adriatic Seas. And it was known across the Mediterranean as savage sailing water. Now, some of you know about... Cape Horn in southern, the south end of, of Tierra de Fuego, uh, of Patagonia, all the way south South America in the roaring 40s, where you take your life in your hands to try and sail around that. Same thing of trying to sail around the Peloponnese Peninsula. It was, it was, the weather could change in an instant, and you and your ship were picked up and thrown on the rocks, torn apart. So those sea captains just said, hey, we'll dump our load here and go back where we came from. <clears throat> As a result of the trade, goods like Arabian balsam, Libyan ivory, Babylonian rugs, Lyconian wool, Lebanese spices, and Phrygian slaves abounded. A major slave trade center in Corinth. All manner of immoral practice was available. The temple of Aphrodite, that's the Greek god for love. Okay? That was on the side of a mountain, just above the city. And every evening, right at sunset, a thousand priestess pro prostitutes came out of that stronghold on the hill and came down the hill to ply their trade through the city. And they wore sandals that had embossed bottoms. And if, you ha if they happened to step in the mud or into soft ground, they left the Greek words, follow me, all over the city. 
So when Paul wrote to his, his uh, to, to second, yeah, his, his thing to, to the Corinthians, he he'd been there, he knew the culture, and he knew what he was writing about. Now the same could be said about some of our cities: San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, New Orleans, Chicago. You name it. Same problems, same, if you will, reputation in some senses in some of the eras in the past and the present. And I want to read you 1 Corinthians, ah, 1, Corinthians 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. In Paul's first letter, and he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be, de- be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So the congregations and the churches in Corinth had come from a background of utter pagan stuff and a few out of the synagogue. Things were so wild in Corinth that the verb Corinthianize or to Corinthianize was crafted. And it simply meant that you were so filled with debauchery and you were so busy recruiting others to be part of your debauchery that they labeled you. You were trying to Corinthianize someone. 200 years ago, plus 220 years ago, 1800s in England, in the Regency era, when young men were rakes, when young men were immoral, when young men did rowdy things, they were called Corinthians. <clears throat> Ray Steadman referred to First and Second Corinthians as the books of First and Second Californians. Now, the international trade, cultural diversity, paganism, and debauchery made Corinth an ideal location to proclaim the gospel of the risen Christ and plant a church. And that's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy set out to do. Paul stayed in Corinth 18 months, worked as a tent maker, saddle maker, worked alongside of, of uh, Aquila and Priscilla, earned his own way. He didn't expect those churches to support him in any way. Okay, He was there for 18 months, and then he left. He left some staff behind him, if you will, Titus, Timothy, etc. There were others that were traveling with him, so they, he didn't abandon those churches. Okay? But he had to go back to Antioch, end his second missionary journey, make a report, and then he pivoted and went north. Started the third missionary journey, and he went directly to Ephesus. And he got there, and he tried again with the synagogues, with the result that they had wanted nothing to do with him. So he moved into the school of Tyrannus. And in that school, he taught the scriptures six days a week from dawn to after midnight every day for six days a week and out of that came over two and a half years came people who converted from paganism to Christ and his disciples and the combination of the converts and disciples they began to spread out across Asia Minor they were the ones who took the gospel to the very edges of Asia Minor so that in the coming years it said in one of his other epistles all Asia knows the gospel all Asia has been exposed to the claims of Jesus Christ. So in his first year teaching in Corinth, he gets a letter from Corinth. And the letter said, 
Boy, we got some problems. We got some folks that are hard. It's a hard transition from being a good, healthy pagan to following Jesus and living his life in you. And so Paul wrote a letter back. It said, part of it, most directly, don't keep company with fornicators. Now, fornication is just immoral, illicit sex. But in this case, the word speaks about a lifestyle. This was not a casual passing one-night stand. This was daily, on and on and on. It was a lifestyle. And, and so Paul says, get away from them. We don't have that letter. It's not extant. We don't have any record of it. Doesn't mean it won't appear. Doesn't mean it can't be found someplace, you know, in a ruin where it has been entombed. Uh, and um, it's been dry for two centuries. And that happens periodically. They'll find a tomb somewhere, open it. It's dry and everything inside is desiccated. And, dry. and there's pen, and there's manuscripts and there's, there's, uh, uh, it's the fabric that they make out of pounding reeds together. I can't, papyrus, there we go. Which Paul wrote some of his stuff perhaps on papyrus, some of it on vellum in scrolls. We don't know. Okay, we don't have original copies. So it is possible we'll find other portions, okay? This is one that doesn't we don't know about. But it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians that he had sent that letter. Okay? <clears throat> Sensing that there were still struggles in the churches in Corinth, Paul sat down his second year, A.D. 55, in Ephesus, and he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. He never got an answer back. Spooked him. Just shook him. It's like... What's going on? And so he gets himself from Ephesus downriver to Miletus. And it doesn't show on that map, but it's, it's, it's the port city for Ephesus. He gets on board a ship. Now, if the wind is in the right direction on the Aegean, and it's in the back of you, it's pushing you from east to west, and that happens in certain seasons, three days of 24-hour day sailing puts you in, the, in port in Corinth. So he arrives, and he knows I got a problem because there are factions in the churches in Corinth. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, like he's made his greetings. He's, he said, in, in the name of God, grace and peace be on you. And then he starts talking almost immediately about these factions where people divided up in groups and said, oh, I'm of Paul. And the other group says, no, no, I'm of Cephas. Now, Cephas is Peter. And Peter was known to have traveled with his wife widely around the Mediterranean, leading people to Christ, telling his story. And so there were people in Corinth, whether they were led to Christ there or they came to Corinth after being led to Christ by Peter. But they were obviously in Peter's camp. They received the gospel from Peter, perhaps even before Paul got there. I mean, it's, it's, we don't know. Okay. And then the third category is the, quote, I am of Christ, unquote. So you got at least three factions working on. Okay, the latter was a group of troublemakers who pulled the God card to trump all other groups. In that latter division was a leader who was especially hostile to Paul and accused Paul of fickleness, authoritarianism, of ministering without proper credentials, of cowardice, of a failure to maintain the dignity of the clergy, of presumption and fleshliness. And when Paul showed up, that leader got tacit approval from the congregations. And the, 
And the believers in Corinth did not stand up to defend Paul. I mean, he was rocked to his socks. And at the same time, that he's dealing with this divisive stuff. A group of Jewish apostles, if you will, quote-unquote, arrive in Corinth to challenge Paul's integrity and apostleship. They, in turn, claimed apostle standing on the basis of their performance of wonders, ecstatic visions, and rhetorical powers. They presented another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And Paul describes that as demon doctrine. So Paul left Corinth feeling totally rebuffed and in, insulted. He's bereft of those converts that he'd spent 18 months leading them to Christ and then helping them grow up in the faith. Spread over the two epistles of Colossians that we have, Paul says that that divisive group, the of Christ group, had corrupted the word of God. They were deceptive. They were domineering. And they wanted to take control of what Paul had built in Corinth. Now Paul returned to Ephesus in a state of seismic misery and anguish. Deeply concerned for the churches in Corinth that were being twisted this way and that. He sends a quick letter instructing the churches to confront the divisive leader of the Of Christ group themselves. Which he refers to in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. And he wrote what he refers to in 2 Corinthians as a letter of tears. Now some scholars say, no, 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 that's too soft. You want to translate severe letter that he sent to the Corinthian churches. And he sent it off hand carried by Titus. And he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And he knew, he knew Titus was going to try and meet him later. But Ephesus blew up. Uh... I don't remember. What it was. I think it was Demetrius was the name of it, the guy. I, he was the lead silversmith, and he led a riot in Ephesus by the silversmith that was against Christians and blew up the house churches in Ephesus. And Paul got out of town. He went north to Troas, and he expected Titus to be there to meet him, and he didn't come, and he didn't come, and he didn't come. <clears throat> and the Lord opened this amazing door of ministry for the for gospel outreach in Troas. But Paul was so wrenched with his heart for no response back at all from the Corinthians that he just couldn't stay in Troas. And he got on a ship, went across the Bosporus, <clears throat> crossed over to Macedonia, and tried to find Titus on the road coming back. <clears throat> and somewhere, <coughs> excuse me, somewhere in Macedonia, he runs into Titus, they're reunited and the report from Titus is they long for you to come back, Paul. They love you, Paul. And, and we've dealt with all that divisive stuff. That's behind us now. So Paul sits down wherever he was and they speculate it was in Philippi in 56 AD and he writes 2 Corinthians and sends it back with Titus. And it's intensely personal and it's autobiographical. I mean, he just, he just pours out his heart for them. Now, in all, we know of four letters that passed from Paul to the Corinthians. Now, some believe that, that those portions 
or portions of those lost letters, if you will, are incorporated into either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. And that's kind of a scholarly hoof, you know, foo-for-ah, you know. He, this is what he meant when he said that, but nobody knows. So years pass, and it was 90 AD before the, the documents of Paul's letters to the Corinthians were collected and compiled. That's maybe 30 years after Paul dies. After he's executed in Rome. 20 years after that, Polycarp, one of the church fathers, he writes a letter to the Philippian church and says, well, the greetings, da-da-da-da-da, and he quotes 2 Corinthians three times. Uh, In AD 175, the Muratorian Canon, which was a a collection of of um, of gospel accounts and epistles some we still have as part of the of the um, canon of scripture some in the Muratorian canon like the shepherd of Hermas or the gospel of Peter or the gospel of Judas or you know things like that that were being passed around in churches they were deemed apocryphal they were deemed not fully scripture they were not written by the Holy Spirit and they were left behind when the church set the canon of New Testament scripture but the Muratorian canon said in its that Paul wrote two letters not four and then you push it forward into the third century all of a sudden church fathers they're all quoting they're all writing and quoting 2nd Corinthians so all this outside evidence that Paul's writings were retained and you can backtrack and you can see does this date here match the same writing we have of this date back here so it's the exterior evidence that says this is the real deal. The epistle is exceptionally personal. And uh, there's a great quote out of Easton's Bible Dictionary. that It says it just shows the individuality of the apostle more than any other. You know, it, it set him apart from some of the apostolic records that we have. It describes him as a man of human weakness spiritual strength, the deepest tenderness of affection, wounded feelings, sternness, irony, rebuke, impassioned self-vindication, humility, a just self-respect, zeal for the welfare of the weak and the suffering, as well as for the progress of the Church of Christ and for the spiritual advancement of its members, all displayed in turn in the course of his writing. Now, all that said, this introduction for you guys sets the stage for Paul's description and teaching on his pastoral work. The passages we're going to study on the New Covenant ministry are seasoned with grace and joy. So, Forge family, I know that most of us, if not all of us, have sat through church disruptions, church splits, arguments between leaders, etc., I have. And I remember the ache and deep frustration with those who would not see and who would not hear. Now, take that emotion, whatever memory you have of that, that you thought you dealt with. (laughs) uh, Take that emotion and bring it with you through this series. Because it it isn't just about what happened. It's about your responses to what happened. And we got a chance to watch Paul's spirit-led responses to hurt and insult. 
and we've got a chance to heal some of that stuff forever that we carry with us. And it will equip us to pass along joyful patterns of response in tough times. Second, most of us were raised in church settings where we were taught that what we did for Christ really counted. But we were never adequately exposed to what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us through Holy Spirit. Somehow that was on the back burner. It never quite got articulated in many of the churches I served in, attended, and heard from. And perhaps that's your story as well. All we knew what to do was to muscle up and try harder. The New Covenant Ministry will offer you a spirit-filled template of how to trust the Lord and follow Him. So let's pray. Mighty God, you are constantly lead us, you lead us in your ways. We want to step away from those hurts, past patterns, past expectations, and come to you afresh by Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for Paul's vulnerability and joy. We want that too, Lord. So you told us to ask for what we want. So we ask now by Holy Spirit for those spirit-driven characteristics to come to forge in force. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.